you turn your Bibles tonight to the 15th chapter of the book of Genesis, uh, we looked at the first six, really seven verses last week, and now we're going to finish up with what is commonly known as the Abrahamic covenant or the covenant that God makes with Abram. The reason that the covenants in Scripture, I believe, are immensely important is this. They picture the finished work of the cross. As you look at these covenants, we're going to see these wonderfully, beautifully crafted ways that God's communicating eternal truth in a temporal environment at a time in which the new covenant is not in view fully to anyone. Uh, It's going to be another 2,000 years before Jesus will come on the scene, Uh, and as he authors this new covenant of grace, which we now walk in, God is really giving a picture, uh, a preview, if you will, of that grace as he announces this covenant. Remember, he's already given one to Noah. Now he gives a second one uh, to Abram. He's going to give yet a third to David, really what most people call a fourth one or the covenant with Israel itself. And, And so these covenant promises that are made. Beautiful passage of scripture, and there's so much to be gleaned in this particular passage that applies to you tonight, to me tonight, Uh, and it begins really with the very first thing that is said in verse 7, and so would you uh, join me, and we'll pray together and ask God to speak to us again through his word. Father, again, what can we say but you are the Lord, and we are so grateful uh, that you manage time and you manage space, you manage all material matter in the universe, you manage our lives, and you've never dropped anything. You've never failed at anything, and you will never fail at anything. You will never break a promise. And so these promises that are made, Lord, you have made and you will keep. And we thank you for that picture that moves into our lives, because you're the author And Jesus, you're the finisher of our faith. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. No one can snatch them out of your hand, Father, Abba, Father, Daddy. No one can take us out of your hand. And so we love you for your promises and pray that you'd speak to us through your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 7, here in Genesis chapter 15. And remember, we looked at this in the context of what we'll see in verse 12, because Abram kind of goes back and forth between a vision, and he's going to have really a a nightmare in verse 12. Uh, But in it, God speaks out of this time uh, of grave concern in Abram's life. And then he said to him, I am the Lord. You know, anytime you've got something going on in your life that you cannot figure out any possibility as to how God is going to accomplish this, you have to always revert to, he is the Lord. He's never been less than God. He will never be less than God. Every morning when you get up, he's still God. Every evening when you go to bed, he's still God. And he is the Lord And nothing can thwart his purposes. His sovereign hand is always able. And so the first thing that we see in this passage, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. Now remember that we've already seen what happened to Abram. The moment he gets to the land, what happens to him? First thing that happens is he goes down to Egypt. He like, he like bails. He's like, I, I'm not staying here. There's a famine. And so now he's come back, and as soon as he come back, comes back, what happens? He fights a war. It's a picture of our lives as we live them in Christ as well. You're, you're going to think you've got it right spot on and you're going to get there and something unexpected is going to come into your life. And then you're going to get through that trial, you're going to get through that test and you're going to get back to walking right next to the Lord 
And a war is going to ensue in your home. Maybe in your job. Maybe in our city. Maybe in our state or our nation. Maybe something's going to befall us as a group. But it has wisely been said, the Christian life is no playground. It's a battleground. Amen? Amen. You're going to go from battle to battle. You're going to go from war to war. But know this, you are more than a conqueror through him who loves you. Amen? That's in view here. To give you this land, to inherit it. And I'm going to stop for just a moment. I want you to think about this correctly. Many of you in here, there's a few of us, I'm looking around the room, there's a few that are, that are my age, maybe, maybe a, little, a few of you that are a little older. And so we're in that stage of life to where we're starting to think about what we're going to leave to our children. Now, I can tell you, I started working when I was 17 years old full-time. All but two weeks of my entire adult life, I have held a full-time job or more, 40 hours a week or more. So I'd like to think I've put in a little bit of work into the things that the Lord has blessed us with, And in fact, I think I've worked pretty hard to say, Lord, thank you for the things that you're giving to us. I want to be a good steward of them. But at the end of the day, I can't take anything we have to heaven. Amen? It's going to stay here. Now, my sons are millennials. And they have not worked for over 50 years. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to go before they do, and so is Connie. And so we are one day going to give them an inheritance. And no matter what they do between now and then, they will not ever be able to catch up with the effort put into those things being brought into our household and stewarded over, they are going to be a gift to our sons. They can't earn them. They are going to be given to them irregardless of anything that they do between now and then. Why? Because we love our boys. And we want the very best for them. Think of the word inherit in that light. There is nothing Abraham is going to do to earn it. He can't do enough to get it himself. It is going to be a gift. And in this case, it's about six to seven, maybe eight thousand square Miles today. The actual land, about 60,000 square miles. God says, I brought you here and I want to give you this. God's brought you to where you are and He has something He wants to give you. And it starts with your salvation experience. And it grows from there. And you can't earn it. You'll never deserve it. And it'll always be more than you need. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Now some people go on a little bit of a tangent here. And it's like, how dare Abram ask God that kind of question? I mean, it's a gift. He's looking a gift horse in the mouth, so to speak. Which, by the way, if you don't know what that actually means, back in the day when people used to look a gift horse in the mouth, if someone gave you a horse, the first thing that you would do to see if that horse was worth anything is open its mouth and look inside to see what its teeth looked like to see if it was about ready to die or not. So it was kind of like, ooh. How shall I know that I will inherit? 
And so he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer. For those of you who are squeamish, turn your eyes away from the scriptures at this point in time. Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him and he cut them in two. Down the middle. And he placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the two birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Now remember, this has begun with a question. How am I going to know? How am I going to know I'm going to inherit this? And God tells him, I want you to slaughter some innocent animals. I want you to cut them in half. And he gives him some further instruction. Then he said to Abram, in this dreamlike state, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. And I want you to pay very careful attention to this part of this passage. Because if there's one single thing that we know about the history of the Jewish people is they have been a stranger in just about every part of the entire world throughout their existence on the face of the earth. But God says that to Abram at a time when he's saying, the land is yours. The proof is what we call the diaspora, the dispersion, the removal, the casting away, and we'll serve them. And he's going to give a specific time here because it all begins with the captivity in Egypt. And they will afflict them for 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. And God certainly did judge Egypt to begin with. He also judged Nazi Germany, didn't he? And every other nation who has come against the nation Israel, the Jewish people. Can I draw attention to something for you? The Jews are still here and the Romans are not. The Jews are still here and the Greeks are not. The Jews are still here, the Carthaginians are not. The Jews are still here, the Persians are not. Get the picture? God made a promise to them and he gave them a very specific place that he was going to say is their inheritance. He says, now make no mistake, you're going to get kicked out of that land. But because that land is actually his land, because all land is his land, amen? Amen. The whole world, all belongs to him. Ultimately, no man can lay hold of something. You know, I kind of love it when you you listen to, you know, read these articles about, you know, people with wealth buying little islands or little tiny chunks of property someplace and they build a compound. Can you imagine how funny that looks to God? He's sitting in heaven going, really? You name your own little island, your own island. Connie and I were actually vacationing in Maui when Bill and Melinda Gates were married. And and we didn't know it at the time. We came back and read the article about it. But when they got married, they actually rented the entire island of Lanai. And they kicked everybody off. The only people allowed on the island were their wedding guests. God still owned the island. He was still there. He didn't disappear. May have cost Bill Gates $140 million for his wedding. But God's going, bucket change. (laughs) We think we're so crafty. So wise, and then we can pull one over on God. But he always gets the last word. I will judge, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. 
And again, though he's speaking very specifically of the time that they will spend in bondage to Egypt, it is also true after every single major portion of the diaspora when the Jewish people have come, gone out, they have come back in with great possession. Travel to Israel today if you want to see that. Massive wealth. This little tiny nation, 8,000 square miles, that's it. San Bernardino County is over 20,000 square miles, to give you an idea, is the eighth largest economy in the entire world. The state of California is 200 times larger than the nation of Israel. But great wealth. God made a promise to Abram. The Jewish people are the children of Abram, Abraham, soon to be, Isaac, and Yaakov. And from him will come the 12 tribes. God has made an irrevocable promise to them of the land. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you'll be buried at a good old age But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. So four generations from Abram, great-great-grandfather, will be the one that would be the most likely to, to be still on the horizon at the time the people come back. And then he gives a reason. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And we'll look at this. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dusk, it was dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. There are two things that are always in view when you're talking about the holiness of God. One is his judgment and one is is his justice or his holiness. His light, his fire. And on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land. And now he goes on to describe it. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So from the Nile to the Euphrates River, Think of Israel today and then think of that's even remotely close. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So the land of all of these people. And so when you look at it, and we'll get into it in a little bit, you see this massive piece of land that God says, I'm giving you this land and I want you to understand that this is your land, so here's how I'm going to explain it to you. You're going to go into captivity. Now think about that from a Jewish perspective. Abram receives this promise and the first thing that he actually understands about the promise is, I'm not going to see it come to fruition. I'm going to die of a ripe old age God explains how large this land is. Now bear in mind, Abram came from the other side of the land of promise. He came from Ur of the Chaldees on the river Euphrates in modern-day Iraq. He is journeying from modern-day Iraq into modern-day Turkey, from modern-day Turkey through modern-day Syria, down through modern-day Lebanon, and into modern-day Israel. And God says... Everything you crossed over, I'm giving to you. It's yours. Everything your foot's ever touched is yours. Because you're my son in the faith, and what is mine belongs to you. It's this beautiful picture of our lives as believers as well. He said, 
He's already promised, made this promise, if you remember back in chapter 12 and 13, we saw that. And so in that sense, this piece of land becomes an important part of our history, the history of salvation. And in fact, the final act of the history of salvation is going to occur in this exact land. Because the plan of salvation is going to be finalized when Jesus returns again and sets up his throne in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And so this land is important, but it's such a crazy notion. Now remember what God has said here, and oh, by the way, you're going to be kicked out of the land. And isn't it interesting when bad things happen to good people that we... Initially, our hearts, our minds have a tendency to go, God doesn't love me anymore. What did I do wrong? But actually, part of the promise is, you're going to get kicked out. The land is yours. And here's why this is so important. Virtually every promise that God ever makes to everyone is going to be tested at some point in time, and you are going to have to believe it by faith. Do you not think for a moment that when the children of Israel are in captivity in Egypt that they're not going, the Lord forgot me. Why are we here? I mean, I didn't have anything to do with Abram and Sarah and Hagar, whom we're going to see next. Why am I being punished? You see, we immediately begin to think, well, maybe God wasn't serious. Maybe the promise wasn't for me. And so the reason I'm drawing your attention to this, God is on a different time scale than we are. Amen? He is in eternity looking at time. We are in time looking at eternity. That is a very different view. We are looking from the temporal. We look from the place that we are, which is temporal. And so we see temporal things. If, if I were to have all of you get up and we go outside and it's a nice clear night, which it's never a nice clear night in Los Angeles, but if we were to do that and we were all go outside and I tell you, man, we should go outside, let's look at the stars. And you go out there and you do this, you are not going to see any stars. Because this is a hand. And though your hand is very tiny compared to the cosmos... If you let your hand get in front of that which is grand, you are not going to see anything. Why? Because this is in time, and for all intents and purposes, that's in eternity. It's in the heavens. And so we see things, Abraham saw things from a very limited perspective. This promise seems so far-fetched that in 1932, one of my favorite Bible expositors, G. Campbell Morgan, who for many years of his life believed replacement theology, that God was done with Israel, actually said in his book, This Was His Faith, which was a, a biography of himself, an autobiography to a large degree, I am now quite convinced that the teaching of the scripture as a whole is that there is no future for Israel as an earthly people at all. You know why he said that? Because if you went at that time to what we now call the nation Israel, 16 years before it actually became a nation in 1948, you would have found nothing but nomads. Swamps, some of the most ugly, desolate land that existed on the planet Earth, and you would have found no one living there, especially Jewish people. You see, when you have an earthly view of heavenly things, you sometimes come up with an earthly reasoning. 
And God's trying to get us to focus on heaven. He's trying to remind us, look, I made this promise. And so the battle to keep that land in the hands of, of the Jewish people has been going since the very first day that God made this promise to then Abram who's not yet had his name changed to Abraham from day one. What do you see in the land today? Hamas, PLO, Muslim Brotherhood, useless UN peacekeeping forces, nations that hate the Jewish people, surrounding the Jewish people, Their borders continually shrinking. Jihadis slaughtering Jewish people virtually daily. Suicide bombings, though greatly reduced by their wall of protection that's around the edge of the West Bank in in places. Multiple wars with Syrian-backed Hezbollah. Border incursions was from Syria. If you've been following what's been going on this last week, Hamas in Gaza has resorted to taking children's kites and filling balloons and other items with, with flammable materials and flying those kites over the border, lighting them on fire with a so, so that they can drop their contents into a field and light the field on fire. And yet, the sum and total of the land that the Jewish people actually control right now is a scant 8,000 square miles. In spots, the nation Israel from coast to the other border is less than 13 miles wide. And yet, virtually the whole world is still asking them to give up more land. Read the promise. You are going to be dispersed from this land. It's going to cost you to hang on to it. That was the proof that God said was, I made this promise with you. You're going to have to fight to hang on to it. You're going to get kicked out multiple times. Here's the good news. Nobody, nobody is actually going to thwart the plans of God. It isn't going to be Iran. It's not going to be the UN. It's not going to be Russia. They're all going to try and all have tried. The United States has tried. The British have tried. When the Balfour Mandate was signed in 1917, with quite a bit of protest, by the way, ultimately what was given to Israel was shrunk down to what we see modern-day Israel is today. And a UN resolution, UN Resolution 118, that was actually signed, gives the Jewish people this little tiny sliver of 8,000 square miles that God said was actually supposed to be 160,000 square miles. That's the promise. The promise to Abram was that you're going to be kicked out of the land and it's going to cost you to hang on to it. So Abram asked for assurance from God. I think I would too. It's like you tell me we're going to go into captivity. You tell me it's going to be a problem. Can I remind you that God is perfectly okay with you asking him questions? He understands you don't understand. Have you ever thought about that? You ever thought about how God thinks about how you think? I know that sounds a little ridiculous, but have you ever thought about how God thinks about how you think? The fact of the matter, he does think about how you think. He knows exactly how you think. Matter of fact, the Bible says he knows your thoughts before you do. 
So he is already thinking about what you're thinking. So when you ask him what you think is a dumb question, it's not only not dumb, he knew you were going to ask it. So ask it. Ask of God. You see, it was one thing for Abram to own the land. It was another thing for him to possess the land. Let me give you a little... uh, a little hint here. Right now, the bank actually owns your house. Amen? For most of us anyway. And this is a picture of this. But the bank doesn't possess your house. You possess your house. You see, ownership and possession come together eventually when they are one in the same. When the owner and the possessor are together. Right now, the owner and the possessor are not one and the same. The owner is God, and the possessor is a whole bunch of other people who think that they can tell God what to do. But they're going to find out one day that the earth and the fullness of it is the Lord's. And then the possession and the ownership are going to come together. And so Abram responds and he asks a sign. He said, what is it, Lord? And so part of it is, it's going to be really, really tough for you to hang on to this land. You're going to get kicked out. You're going to have to leave. You're going to go into captivity. They're like, well, that's kind of a stinky promise. It's like, what kind of promise is that? You give us something, then kick us out? You know, sometimes you just have to cling to the Lord. Trust him, believe him. This ceremony. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, I'm going to cut a deal? Did you know it's actually biblical? This is it. That's where it comes from. Cutting a deal, cutting a covenant is what this was called, was so costly that no one took it lightly because it was going to cost you some of your finest animals. There's a heifer involved here. This is an expensive thing. It was also going to cost the innocent animals their lives and it was going to have to be entered in by both parties and so it was serious. Highly instructive of your life in the Lord, by the way. As we go through the Old Testament, we see this continual uh, example given to us that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And in fact, it is the blood that makes atonement for our sin. It's exactly what Leviticus 17 says. It's the reason, ultimately, that, that Jesus fulfills all of these qualifications because he shed his blood for us on Calvary's cross. Amen? He shed his blood to remit, to remove, to pay the debt, ultimately leading to our justification. Your sins have been erased because his blood was shed. And so God begins that process of helping all of us understand, look, someone's got to die for this promise to be codified. And in this case, it was innocent animals. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so I believe from this point forward, Abram got this, the Jewish people got this. It was passed along as a heritage. It's like, look, if something's going to matter, it's going to cost blood. And in this kind of gory thing that we're looking at here, You see life come out of death. You see what will ultimately be the salvation of the Jewish people. Begin here with this gruesome ceremony. 
And I want you to notice something that each of these five animals, these are the official sacrificial animals. So it's one of each of them, plus the two doves which are left whole. What happened to Jesus? Was a bone of his broken? He was left whole. And so there's a picture here, actually, of the sacrifice of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's embedded into this gruesome sign of God's being serious. You can't trifle with this. But in the midst of this, Abram does something really strange. God, he has to stay up and fight off the vultures. He, he, he can't let the enemy come snatch away the sacrifice. I think here's a little picture of, of Satan himself descending to try and destroy this because if the sacrifice is messed with, if one piece is missing, then the sacrifice is not complete. If there's anything left out, you see, you can't take anything out of Christ's sacrifice. You can't make him less than God, nor can he be less than a man. You, you cannot make him, well, he kind of, sort of took our sins on. No, he took all of our sins on. He, he bore my sin on Calvary's cross. You see, you can't take anything away from Christ's sacrifice either. And so God is saying, look, you better defend the sacrifice. When the enemy comes, you need to make sure the sacrifice is whole. And again, it's just a, it's a window. It's a, it's a look-see into God's operation here. And so Abram makes the preparation. And it's interesting to me, as he does this, nothing happens for the whole rest of the day. He has to wait on the Lord. He's got to do all the things that we have to do. He's got to believe by faith somehow this gory mess. God is going to see it, and he's going to see Abram's faith. Remember, it was accounted to him as righteousness. He's now a, a man who's walking in faith. And because of God's very character and nature, just as, as Peter would remind us, remind us there in 2 Peter 3, 9, look, the, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, amen? As some of us would count slackness. You see, to me, I would look at something, and if you're going to send the people for four generations to Egypt, I'm going, well, maybe he's not actually going to keep that promise. Or maybe you have a family member that you've been praying for for decades and they're still not safe. Well, maybe he's not going to keep that promise. You see, we still wrestle with the same things ourselves. I wrestle with the same things. Any pastor that tells you he doesn't wrestle with the few things that God puts on his plate is just not being honest. I wrestle sometimes with the way God operates. Like, Lord, I wouldn't do it that way. You know what? I'm killing every pedophile on the face of the earth. If I was God just telling you, if you're a pedophile, you're dying. That's just how I look at it. Not that violence against anybody is good, but I got a special, there's a thing that goes on in me because I spent 20 years as a camp director and I listened to story after story after story of abused child where the abuse started when there were three. So when someone comes to me, I'm a little less than gracious sometimes. So I struggle with that. <laughs> Just saying, so if you're going to bring me something like that, you may want to think about what you're going to tell me before you tell me. <laughs> Not saying that the grace of God can't reach you through my life, but I, I, I got, I'm just being honest. I got an issue. I got a serious problem trusting that God's somehow going to work that all out. Sometimes I have a serious problem even extending grace to people like that. It's like, no, I don't think so. I think that's unpardonable sin stuff right there in your head. Why am I sharing this with you? Because every last person in here probably has something in your life that's exactly like that. Some area where you're tempted to believe that God somehow... He's good on everything else, but not this one thing. 
We're human. We ask questions. We sometimes think really dumb stuff, don't we? Maybe you don't. I do. I think some dumb things sometimes. And God has to correct me. So Abram is starting this whole process off of walking by faith. And so what does God do? He does not leave it in Abram's hands. He doesn't say, well, Abram, you know, as long as you accept this, and as long as you codify it, and as long as you do something, he teaches Abram about grace right now. Unmerited favor with God, because God alone passes through the middle of the sacrifice. Abram doesn't go. Abram doesn't have to judge anything. Abram just gets to receive it. There's an interesting passage, and it's found in Jeremiah chapter 34, and you can mark it, read it later. But I'll read verses 18 to 20. You see, when the parties would walk through the pieces of the sacrifice, it was a declaration that if they failed to keep their part... They would die. Guess what Abram doesn't have to do? God says, this is a grace thing. I'm not going to ask you to walk through there because I'm going to keep it even if you don't. Verse 18, Jeremiah 34, And I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant, which they have made before me, when they cut it in half, a calf, in two pieces, and pass between the parts of it, the princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf, If they don't keep it, check this out. I will give them into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their life, and their dead bodies shall be meat for the birds of heaven and the beasts of the earth. God is serious. Serious about the covenant. And so knowing that Abram has no capacity to keep an eternal covenant by his own works, God says, Abram, you better stay here. I'll go through, thereby making no condition on the covenant. This is an unconditional covenant that God makes with Abram. I am giving you and your descendants this land, and irregardless of whether you transgress it or not, I don't care if you reject it or not, One of the things that you don't know is we were meeting on Saturday. We had a a young man with us. It was from up in Northern California. He's a brand new believer, came to faith in Christ uh, in February. And Jeffrey, if you're watching, this is for you. Shout out to you. Also named Jeff. And as I'm talking to Jeff, he's he's talking about the covenants. And and he's Jewish. He came, he was born and raised in Herzliya on the coast of Israel, uh, came here, completely fed up with all the craziness of Judaism. He began to search in all kinds of uh, world religions. He's he's just looking through all these these various ways uh, to to make peace with his own thoughts about worship because he realized there's something in him that inherently wanted to worship and wanted to worship God. But he says he started talking about the law. He says, the law is insane. Who can keep the law? I said, that's why we needed Christ. And so what happens? He gives his life to Jesus. And so now he's a completed Jewish believer who believes in Messiah. But he realized, he saw it as a Jewish man. He says, there's no way in the world. I asked him a question. I said, what do you think they do on Yom Kippur now? Last time I looked, there's no temple in Jerusalem. And he started talking about his family's history. He said, well, we just kind of, we spiritualize it. And I said, have you ever read what was said about the feast days and what happened if you didn't actually keep them? You would die. And he just started to weep. I said, that's the extent of grace. 
because you can't keep them. There is no way in the world. If you take those 613 laws, even though some of them are for men and some of them are for women, just lump them all together. We're all in humankind together. It's an impossibility. And so everything that follows, remember, the law is not even created yet. God says, look, if I make this one conditional, Abram, you and Sarah, and everyone who follows after you is dead. So I'll go through it myself. I will walk between the pieces. I myself will go and I will testify that this is sufficient. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Amen? You see? God's given him a picture. He's saying, look, you can't do it on your own. All the way back to Abram. And so God alone passes. He goes through the parts. He makes the promise. No conditions on this covenant he makes. Hallelujah. Amen? Because that's your God. That's your Savior, Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That is not of yourself. It is a gift of God that none of us should boast. Sacrifice is complete. The blood was shed. It's a beautiful picture of the grace of God. In this covenant, there are three specific entities and I want to get through the rest of this tonight. As Abram hears these terms, it involves really three very specific entities. And of course, it, it is Israel. Israel's not Israel yet. Jacob's not born yet. Isaac's not born yet. But looking forward to your descendants, remember, Abram up to this point has been great with believing God. He says, look, You've told me my descendants are going to be as numerous as the dust of the earth, the stars of heaven. I'm trusting you on this one. But he does not have an heir yet. So there is a future Israel, a future nation, future descendants that are in view here in chapter 15 in verses 13, 14, 16, and 17. The second entity is Abram himself. The dude is no spring chicken. Neither is Sarah. So God's still got that part to keep. And yet he's making an unconditional promise. If this goes bad, God's not God. Do you understand? That's why when somebody comes to me, he says, well, you know, I don't trust the Bible. I go, are you kidding me? Tell me 20 things about the future that you know are going to come true. In the next year. Now, today you could have got one. You could have said, LeBron's going to become a Laker, and you would have got one, okay? As long as you got $154 million, LeBron's going to be a Laker. That's a miracle. Nobody's not coming. But you're not going to get 19 more in a year. It's not happening. And yet when you look through what God did to bring the fullness of Messiah, 418 specific pieces of information attributed to the life of one man during a 33 maybe year long life, all of them leading up to his history, where he would come from, where he would be born, what would happen to him in both life and death, that he would be raised again. If you can tell me how somebody charts that out over a period of over 1,600 years, writing through at least 30 different authors, none of whom knew one another, none of whom had the other's writings to refer to, you tell me how that happens. If that doesn't come from God, I don't know where it comes from. Amen. Amen. So God gives us this promise. 
And he says, look, there's going to be a nation. Abram, you don't know this, but you're going to have a whole bunch of kids. And, of course, then there's the land itself. And so the first thing, the nation. Of course, it will be Jacob and his family that are going to go to Egypt, and they'll be protected by Joseph. We'll get there when we get to chapter 46 uh, here in this amazing book. And, of course, it's the the beginning of the story in Exodus chapter 1 as well. And so here's this nation that's going to come. And and when you read in Exodus chapter 1, and now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, look, the, the people of the children of Israel are mightier than we. Now imagine this is a new Pharaoh. This is a new Pharaoh. He says, look, I, I, I'm not okay with these Jewish people living in our midst. They're getting mightier than we are. They took this whole be fruitful and multiply thing really seriously, and they're doing exactly that. They got a lot of kids. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happened. And in the event of war, also, uh, they will join with our enemies and fight against us and go up and out of this land. And therefore, they sent taskmasters over them to afflict them, to burden them. And he built for Pharaoh supply cities of Pithom and Ramses. And the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were the dread of the children of Israel. Now, you know what, that does not sound like a good thing to me to have Egypt have you in their crosshairs, have Pharaoh say, look, we're going we're gonna to afflict you. And yet not only did they survive that, they thrived in that. And that is a story of the Jewish people throughout their history on this earth. Though Winston Churchill himself, I do not believe, was a believer. I've read nothing that says he professed Christ. He did attribute his belief that there was a God to the fact that the nation Israel actually still existed. He said there has to be a God. You want proof? It's the nation Israel. Something outside of space, outside of time. And so this smoking furnace, maybe it's a picture of Israel's suffering. Pharaoh's cruelty just pressing down on the people. But God got the last laugh, didn't he? He sends a mumbling, bumbling, stuttering prophet named Moses. What shall I tell him? What shall I say? Well, I've got this great war cry. It goes like this. Ah! You know, it's like, no, he says, you tell him I am that I am sent you. Say what? <laughs> yeah, seriously, tell him I am that I am. Then he goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, I, uh, let my people go. I will not let your people go. Okay. (laughs) Can you imagine the seventh, the eighth time Pharaoh comes out and there's Moses. (laughs) You want it? You got it. It's the hand of God. Ultimately resulting in the deliverance of the children of Israel because they took blood and spread it on the doorpost and the lentils of their home and they baked bread without leaven and they fled in the middle of the night and got down to the river and who do they have? They got Pharaoh's army behind them. They got the Red Sea in front of them and mountains on both sides. God said it, I believe it. You see, it took faith to believe that. I'm pretty sure the children of Israel are going, he's our leader? Are you kidding me? 
It's like, could we like get a couple of Pharaoh's guys to like at least come along for moral support? It all begins there. It continues to this day. 400 years later, they're released from that bondage. You ever ask yourself why God waited so long to deliver the children of Israel? It took me a long time to really think on this and and figure out anything that made a bit of sense to me. And I came to one conclusion. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's it. It's the only thing I could come up with. That's the only reason that that I believe God allows sin to continue. Because he's holy, he hates it. But he loves people more than he hates sin. He loves people more than he hates sin. You ever thought of that one? Oh, you better think of that one. Because that's why you're here tonight. He loves you more than he hates the sin that you do. He's not willing that anyone should perish. And he definitely is not slack concerning his promises. And so just as Jesus would say in Matthew's gospel there in chapter 23, you know, fill it up, the measure of your father's guilt. That's why it's the reason that Jesus calls them a brood of vipers. He says, look, you guys have been messing up forever. But my father loves you and I love you. You go do the works of repentance. You come back here and I'll baptize you. I'll do it myself, basically. You see, those who condemn Israel, I believe, are also condemning God. Because his word clearly points to his love for his chosen people, Israel. Uh, And as far as my Bible says, you were either for God or you were against God. And so if you were against those whom God is for, you're against God, and that puts you in a really, really, really bad place. One of the things that strikes you when you travel to the Middle East, especially as you land in Israel and you, you drive up through the... Usually your first day is, is up in the Sharon Valley or along the coast. And then you, you immediately turn your attention towards the border areas and you see the difference between living in Israel proper and right across the border in Lebanon or into Gaza or into Jordan. You can see, because they have exactly the same geography, they have exactly the same resources, exact same availability. There's actually more people in all the other areas. There's more land mass in all the other areas. And the world has thrown more money at those other countries. And yet, here's this little tiny nation that thrives in the midst of all of this adversity. And you have to say to yourself, why is that? Because God made a promise to them. And he's keeping it. Notice I said he's keeping it. Because he's keeping it. He's always been keeping it. He's never going to not keep it. And one day he's going to finish off the keeping of it. And so Abram is on this personal journey of faith. The Apostle Paul could have written to him being confident of this very thing there in Philippians chapter 1. That he who began this good work in you, Abram, is faithful, he is able to complete it under the day of Christ Jesus, under the day of Messiah. Same promise that Paul would write to the church at Ephesus as he speaks to them. He says, you're his workmanship. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Prepared beforehand. Before God ever created the world, he knew exactly what the nation of Israel was going to do. He knew what Abram's personal journey of faith would look like. And he knew the promise that he had made. And as Abram makes that personal journey of faith, he's going to live a good long life. He's going to rest and trust in the promises. He's going to have to. God's going to give him an opportunity, but but he's going to be tested. Brothers and sisters, you are going to be tested in your faith. 
I can tell you, Connie would testify the same. If you sit down and talk with us, our whole lives, our whole time in ministry, which has been 30 of our 40 plus years of marriage, the whole thing start to this day has been a walk of faith. There are days you wake up and you go, I don't, know, I don't have a clue what God's doing right now. I just know God's doing it. That may shock you, but God doesn't check in with me in the morning. I, I, I try and check in with him, but sometimes he, you know, I'm, I'm hearing you know, birds chirping. It's like, Lord, could you kind of tell me what you're doing right now? Because I'm really not quite seeing this. And he's going, nope, not telling you. You're going to have to trust me. You see, pastors have to go through that too. We who are in ministry full time, we who have pastored churches for a long time, we who have walked by faith for a long time, have to keep walking by faith. There is no other way. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And whether whatever is not of faith is sin. That's the insanity of all of this, really from our human perspective. God never lets us off the hook of walking by faith. Isn't that crazy? Why? Because the moment he did, we'd take credit for it. I'd be going, look what I did. Because we're people, right? And so he makes this promise of this land. Abraham began his pilgrimage on one side of it. He's come all the way to the other side of it. And I want you to see, see this. In chapter 12, he said, I will show you this land. In chapter, 32, he, or chapter 13, he said, I will give you this land. And then finally here in chapter 15, he said, I will give your descendants this land. Though we are faithless, he is faithful. Amen. You see, if you just looked at Abram's life, you go, ooh, that's kind of rough. But you're looking at God. That's why when you read the book of Joel, you know, the book of Joel, and I, and I would encourage you to read the whole book, three chapters. Take you ten minutes. It gives you the reason for the tribulation that's coming still. It gives you the reason. And it's actually found in chapter 3, and all of it actually in verse 2. I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter there into judgment with them on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered amongst the nations, and they have divided my land, God said. You see, God's serious about this land thing. It's unconditional. It belongs to the nation Israel. And now that they're back in the land, they've been there since May 14, 1948, that UN mandate, once they entered into that land, there's a couple of things you can count on. They're not leaving until the Lord says, I'm coming back. And then the only reason they're leaving is to rule and reign with Christ as believers in Messiah. That, that's why William Jefferson Clinton couldn't fix it. That's why George W. Bush couldn't fix it. That's why Barack Obama could not fix it. That's why Donald Trump is not going to fix it. All the stuff that's going on in Israel, right? These men do not have what it takes to fix it because what's going to fix it is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, descending from heaven. Amen? Because it's his land, he gave it to the Jewish people, and anyone that tries to drive them out of there is going to be against God. You don't want to be on that side. It's because God's promises are unfailing. God assured him by saying, I am. When, when Abram was concerned about having an heir, a son, God says, no worries, I will. When his concern changed to this land, he says, oh, you don't need to worry about it because I've given it. Who's the emphasis on? 
It's on God, right? Do you believe in the great I am? Do you believe in the great I will? Do you believe in the great I have? Do you believe in the great I've given it? Because if you do, you're good. If you don't, you got some issues. Trust in the great I am. Amen? We're going to pray. We're going to close in song. And because we're late, uh, if you need prayer, pray with each other. You can do that. Amen? Father, thank you for tonight. We thank you that you are the great I am. And you are the great I will. You are the great I have given. You're the great I will accomplish. You are the great it is mine and I'm giving it to you. And so, Lord, we we thank you for this unconditional promise that you made to the descendants of Abram who had not yet a son. And we thank you that we walk in that same grace today. Unmerited favor. Nothing of our own. All that we have is of you. And we thank you for blessing us, Lord. We praise your name. We offer up our lives back to you as living sacrifices. Make us holy and acceptable. It's just reasonable. Given what you've given to us, Lord. We thank you. We praise you. We bless you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.